Welcome to My COVID Diary. My name is Andrea Hardacre and this is My COVID Diary. Like everybody else worldwide, I'm trying to get to grips with a whole new lifestyle during the corona pandemic and I decided to chart my journey here. April 17th, 2020. It's probably a good thing that I have a diary account of this time. I've lost count of how many weeks I've been in isolation and barely know what day it is. When I go to the supermarket, I find myself looking at sell-by dates and wondering what date it actually is. I invariably forget to take my phone with me, so I have to ask someone. Most people look so pleased to have that short conversation with a stranger, even if all they're saying is, it's the 17th. I stop myself asking which month we're talking about. Shopping is stressful. Tesco has strict guidelines, which leaves me worried about making a mistake. Marks and Spencers, on the other hand, is a free-for-all. It's not a big store here where I live, so aisles are tight. But worse than that, social distancing doesn't seem to exist in people's minds. Shoppers come right up behind you, reaching for what they need, then shove up behind you while queuing. It makes me anxious. It's a strange existence being in lockdown. You can almost convince yourself you're safe. We've not been out other than for shopping for about four weeks. But then you look at the statistics. To date, what's been recorded is this. 108,692 cases in the UK. 5,599 new cases. 14,576 deaths. Of whom we're led to believe only 27 were NHS staff. And we're told that those stats are not reliable. Those dying in care homes are not properly accounted for. It's difficult, isn't it, to keep your mind away from the terrors, the new mums who've died leaving their babies behind. I've also read countless stories about relatives unable to attend their loved ones' funerals. The news states there's been a sharp rise in direct cremations. These are cheap and no-fuss affairs where relatives pledge to remember the life of the person they had lost once this is all over with the ceremony. While I couldn't possibly understand how this feels, I was once unable to attend the funeral of one of the most important figures in my life, my gran. Don't get me wrong, she lived a full life and died in her 90s and I was incredibly lucky to have her for so long. But still, I was heartbroken. Beth was a newborn and my son was in hospital with a high fever when she died. Then Paul and I came down with the same virus. We simply went up to the journey to Scotland. So while I accept the situation is very different, I know how hard it is not to say goodbye. I had never really appreciated the importance of funerals until that happened. I'm not particularly religious, so may even have thought it a pointless affair. But when Gran died, I realised just how comforting that ceremony is in times of loss. And when it's not there, it's much harder to accept that loss. On the day she was buried, I sat in my house, not really knowing what to do. I just wanted to jump in the car and drive north, but I wasn't well enough and Joe was still battling a temperature. Life pretty much went on around me and throughout it all, my heart was breaking. People told me I'd done the right thing not going up there when my family was so ill. I just wanted to scream at them. 
I had one friend close by who understood just how important Gran was to me. And here's what I learned. The support and love you receive from relatives can really make a huge difference to your grief. You all knew and loved that same person. You're all hurting. And somehow that shared pain unites you. So my heart is with every single person in this situation who is either isolating without a partner or loved one. I can imagine most of them are still in shock. As I scanned the news for positives, my eye fell upon Hong Kong, population of 7.5 million, reporting 715 cases with four deaths. The first case was back in February. They followed the World Health Organization's advice, tested vigorously, told contacts of those who tested positive to self-isolate and introduced strict border controls quarantining new arrivals for 14 days. They did this with no lockdown, although I believe schools were shut and those who could work from home were encouraged to do so. A survey showed that 85% of the population avoided crowds off their own back and 99% wore face masks when leaving home. As a result... There's been no acceleration of the virus in Hong Kong since February. And this is one of the reasons I think Boris has failed so badly. I'm not an expert in anything, but the first question I asked when this whole thing reared its hideous head was, shouldn't we be quarantining people arriving in the UK from abroad? Shouldn't we be testing to see who has a virus? Should we shield the elderly and vulnerable as a priority? Should we lock down before it takes hold? I found myself swithering in all of this, probably throughout the whole period, and don't have the answer. But perhaps, had we taken swift action at the beginning, we wouldn't have had to lock down for so long. Am I crying over spilt milk? Maybe. So what's the answer now? How do we move forward? We have another three weeks of lockdown. That seems a little on the optimistic side. The Covid cops appear to have lost the plot again. A journalist out walking through Finsbury Park started filming when a girl was marched out of the park by police. It's alarming how close these officers thought it was acceptable to get. The journalist, a key worker, remember, was all of a sudden surrounded by officers telling him to go home, telling him he was killing people. OK, so let's put aside for a moment the images of police standing by during a mass clap on Westminster Bridge last week. Journalists are key workers and have a right to do their job. God help us if there were no witnesses to the kind of overzealous policing some officers are showing right now. Some of them think to, seem to think they're above COVID and above the law. From footage I've seen, both by breaking down the doors of an innocent man and clambering into his house earlier this week and congregating among crowds to clap on Westminster Bridge, then surrounding the journalist and the woman removed from Finsbury Park, they are the ones getting dangerously close. What a mess. In other news, I've been busy with online workshops testing out my ghostwriting skills and now have a good handful of ideas for some stories. I'm hoping to work on them over the next few days. They might keep me busy and out of mischief. This led me to a little research. The person running the workshop mentioned a radio programme where people phone in and speak about their real-life experiences with ghosts. During a podcast of the programme, the BBC played a clip with two journalists conversing while filming. 
A strange and sinister whisper comes over the airwaves which neither could explain. A short while after this, my iPad cut out and all I could hear was the faint buzz of electricity through my headphones. I've never moved so fast in my life. There was no way I was waiting around for that voice to appear in my ears. I've kind of gone off headphones a little bit. I finished Animal Farm this week. I'm not really the kind of person who reads introductions or appendixes in books, but my eye was drawn to what I presume to be an Orwellian essay on the freedom of speech. I've been banging on about this for years, especially with regards to publishing, but of course Orwell puts it much better than I ever could. I'll leave you with his words and you can make up your own minds over what he says. If any of you has had an opinion of late on any subject but found it somehow out of step with the meta-narrative of our time, then you'll understand what I'm getting at. It begins. The sinister fact about literary censorship in England is that it's largely voluntary. Unpopular ideas can be silenced and inconvenient facts kept dark without the need for any official ban. Anyone who has lived long in a foreign country will know of instances of sensational items of news, things which on their own merits would get the big headlines, being kept right out of the British press, not because the government intervened, but because of a general tacit agreement that it wouldn't do to mention that particular fact. At any given moment, there is an orthodoxy, a body of ideas which is which it's assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. Anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds himself silenced with surprising effectiveness. The article goes on to talk about Stalin and makes for interesting reading in these times of mass communication when voices that question are silenced, when those who disagree with certain opinions are removed from their jobs. I could say a whole lot more about this subject, about things that deeply concern me, about the way in which we are blindly moving forward in society. Perhaps now is not the time, or perhaps I'm a coward. Whatever, right now we've got bigger fish to fry.